The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The following podcast contains explicit language. So tell me your name and how old you are. Uh, my name is Serenity and I am six. What, what was your favorite part? My favorite part is when she met Beast. She didn't know Beast and she needed to know to help him. And what? And um, Serenity's mommy... <laughs> what was it like sitting there? Like I guess she, she started crying at a point. Mm-hmm. She was crying when um, she thought the beast was going to get killed. But then I was trying to tell her to watch it through and see that he's going to be all right. It was definitely different from how we grew up seeing it. And, you know, that puts them more into the movie. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Hello and welcome to another episode of Represent. I'm Aisha Harris, your host, and you just heard my esteemed producer, Verilyn, catching up with a young girl and her mother after a screening of Disney's live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast. So as you can tell, the new movie had a strong impact on this little girl, not unlike the way the original animated version had on me when it was released over 25 years ago. I was three years old then. So, of course, we couldn't not talk about it here on the show. And my friend, John Oliveira, who longtime listeners probably remember from previous conversations about Sausage Party and Loving, returned to chat with me about the remake's much-discussed politics and how it holds up. And a little later, you'll get to hear a really candid conversation I had with actor, writer, video producer, this guy wears many, many hats, Dylan Marin, a.k.a. the voice of Carlos from the beloved podcast Welcome to Night Vale and the creator of the viral video series from a couple years ago that catalogs dialogue and popular movies spoken by people of color every single word. Without further ado, up first, the tale as old as time. Joining me and returning to the show today is my wonderful friend, John Oliveira, of the YouTube series, the web series, A Brit and a Yank. Welcome back, John. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you. And you're all the way in, I imagine it's sunny LA right now. I'm here in the Brooklyn studios. Um, But we're here to talk about Beauty and the Beast, which Ah. was (laughs) the, the live action remake starring Emma Watson and Dan Stevens as the Beast. And directed by Bill Condon, who's directed, uh, he's probably best known for directing Chicago back in the early aughts. Um, But yeah, it's the live action remake. Disney has been doing a lot of these lately. And I think I noted this in my review uh, that's on Slate. This is the first live action remake that Disney has done that is actually like pretty of of a film that is pretty recent. Um, Most of the other ones they've done, actually all the other ones they've done have been from of movies that came out, you know, 50 plus years ago, whether it's The Jungle Book last year or Alice in Wonderland. They also did Maleficent, which was the Sleeping Beauty update. So this one is the first one that's like actually pretty current. And 
is the first one that you and I both remember seeing when it first came out uh, when we were young children. Um, so I think the nostalgia factor is pretty, pretty huge for us. And first, let me just get your your overall thoughts. Uh, what were your what were your expectations going into the film? And how did you leave the film after seeing it? My expectations going into the film were a little low because, as you said, the nostalgia factor is amazing. Like, I, this might have been the first film I ever saw in theaters. It's been a huge part of my life for 25 years, maybe a little bit longer. I've seen the Broadway production. I listen to these songs at least once a month, if not more. <laughs> and then when I saw the trailer, I thought visually, wow, it looks stunning. Emma Watson looks great. The characters look great. But her voice is just not where... I want it to be. Right. <laughs> and that's she's not her she's, fault. Well, she's not a singer. She's an actress who's singing, clearly. I didn't think her voice was bad per se, but I didn't think it was good. But at the same time, it it didn't bother me. Like I actually still very thoroughly enjoyed the film and it was it, it met my expectations. And to be honest, like in, instead of this being like a remake of the nineteen ninety one film, I kind of felt like it was the movie Broadway version. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing, though, is that the songs, there's three new songs um, in the film. And one of those added nothing, by the way, (laughs) they they added nothing. One of them is sung by um, her father, Maurice, played by Kevin Kline. And there's also a a different song. The Beast sings a different song from the Broadway version. So none of these songs are actually from the Broadway version, which I think some people might have expected to be the case. Um, But unfortunately, they didn't add those because I thought the the songs from the Broadway version that weren't in the original were great. Like Home, which Belle sings. Home is great. But they they did keep the score of Home in there woven in. Yeah, I heard a little uh, bit of that. Yeah. And human yeah, the again. Beast, the Beast has a great song uh, called If I Can't Love Her from the Broadway musical. That's also really good. So they should have gone with those. But I, I mean, I can see why they didn't. They probably just wanted to keep it fresh, maybe give the film a chance to win a Best Original Song Oscar. Right. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen. <laughs> but um, Celine's song wasn't bad at the end. Yeah, they, they also threw in Celine at the end credits. Uh, Celine Dion, who sung the original version of the Beauty and the Beast title song with Peebo Bryson back in the day. So, there's a lot of big changes, actually, to the original film. A few of them, uh, I think, fit right up the alley of this show, which um, is to kind of dig even more deeply into two aspects, which are the feminist uh, points of Beauty and the Beast and the gay queer aspect of Beauty and the Beast. Um, let's touch on the feminist part first, because I think, you know, the gay part has been sort of talked about a lot these last few weeks. Um, and I feel like the feminist part has been sort of not really discussed, although maybe there isn't much to discuss. But so for those who haven't seen it, although uh, we should note that this movie, as of today, we're recording this the weekend after the opening weekend. It has already broken many, many records, uh, topped out at, at $170 million, uh with the box office. Apparently, according to The Hollywood Reporter, it is the biggest debut ever for a, f- <laughs> they say, quote unquote, female-fueled film. Just a weird way to say it. But apparently, 70% of ticket buyers were female on Friday, and then it evened out to about 60% for the entire weekend. But that's a pretty big deal. Um, And what this film does, in addition to adding like an extra, I want to say like 30 to 40 minutes to the film, is that it tries to flesh out 
all of the characters, including Belle's character. Um, and I thought it was very interesting the way it opens, uh, or at least the way after the prologue, the way it opens with uh, Belle, the song, and how we meet Belle, played by Emma Watson. And there's a moment that I found really fascinating, which was when she's trying to teach a little girl how to read. And the townsfolk are just like, this is terrible. Women shouldn't be reading, blah, blah, blah. And I thought it was kind of a a nice touch to add to the film, although I don't know how much it added to this. Because when you think about Beauty and the Beast, um, it's known, I think, anyone who pays attention to Disney films, it's known as one of the first movies, animated movies, to sort of insert a very blatantly feminist uh, character. Um, Linda Wolverton, who is a screenwriter on the film, she said that she like specifically kind of fought back and forth with Disney about how to create the the original animated Belle. And she was like, I want her to be a book, like, I want her to be a bookworm. I want her to, like, have her own and be her own person. Um, and I think to some extent you can it's true like the original Belle was a huge step up from you know Ariel and the Little Mermaid pretty much every Disney princess who came before her um what do you think of like the sort of uh the attempts within this movie to sort of even update the Belle character even more do you think it fails or succeeds No I think it it succeeded on the two small points definitely showing a girl how to read and then showing the way the town reacts to that is just a big kind of statement on society at the time and kind of society now but also that scene where she kind of invents the washing machine. Oh, right. Yeah, because they make her the inventor. So, like, Maurice's character, the, her father, is no longer an inventor, like a kooky inventor. He's, like, an artist. And instead, she's, like, an inventor. Yeah, and she made that washing machine only because she wanted to spend more time reading and kind of getting more knowledge and learning about the world, even if she was reading the same four books, it looks like that library was so sad in the film. (laughs) (laughs) It was. (laughs) I will also point out there's actually black people in this movie. (laughs) There is. Um, And they're they're good. Yeah, yeah. The librarian uh, was a black, played by a black actor. You also had, obviously, Audrey McDonald, although you don't see her uh, for much of the film because she's the wardrobe. But yes, there was that progression. But yeah, I mean, I thought that that was really interesting to make her for whatever reason, when I saw it, I didn't even pick up on the fact that she had invented that. I was just like, oh, she's, you know, using this. But then now that you mention it, and I've seen a few other reviews mention it, um, now I get that, oh, she was the one who's like, you know, the not just book smart, but also she can work with her hands. She's like the perfect <laughs> fem- feminist for our times. Absolutely. And then just to contrast the original even more, like when Belle kind of replaces her father as the beast prisoner, in the original, she, you know, she gets to her room and then she starts crying. In this one, Belle comes up with an escape plan real quick. She's like, I am not spending another second in here if I don't have to. I'm making a rope, <laughs> climbing out of the tower. And she always kind of stands up for herself, stands up against the beast, says to Gaston, I'm not going to marry you. And so I, I you, you, you have to respect her. Right. And that, I thought that was also interesting. I noted that in my review as well. And someone commented on it about how uh, apparently the reason why in the original she didn't try to escape was because she kept her word and millennials are really bad at c- keeping their word, apparently. And I was like, really? <laughs> she, so okay. this man, the beast, this beast kidnaps her father for like doing what? Her, her father like picked a he tried to pick a rose or whatever and so he's gonna hold him captive forever she takes his place you really think like she 
she deserves like she's supposed to keep her word. Ugh, uh, it just reminded no, me. No, the of- whole th- yeah, the whole <laughs> thing is ridiculous. That, that excuse is just I can't even I can't even speak to that. It's so ridiculous. Yeah, I don't I don't even know. It just stuck in my craw. I was like, really, you're kind of like millennials like can't keep their word. Okay. I should just I be know. complacent I mean, to live in a castle. Is that she's being held captive by a beast? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Which, uh, by the way, she didn't like. She is she is scared for about two seconds, and then she's like, "Yeah, okay, I'll trade places with my father," and then come up with an escape plan. Whereas if it were me, I'd be like, "Um, that is a huge wildebeest." Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to get over this one. Thank you. I know it's weird. Um, but then again, this whole movie is weird because even for all of its feminist trappings, um, it's still at the heart of it, a movie about Stockholm syndrome <laughs> and a woman falling in love with a beast, not know, like not even aware that he could turn into a human. Like, it's not like she knows, oh, if I fall in love with you, then you'll be a human. Like, she no, should she... have had a hunch, by the way, <laughs> that maybe he was a human with all the illusions that they made to it. But I, th- I think this movie actually corrected some of the Stockholm Syndrome from the first one because they actually did have plenty in common in this in this film. Yeah, they both love to read. Exactly. And, and it's and that was a big difference as well, like you mentioned, because in the original, he just gifts her with the library because he like he wants to do a nice thing for her. But in this, they 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 sort of make it a little bit better in that they have an entire conversation about reading and about whether Shakespeare... I mean, it's still like a very like cheesy rom-com version of, of arguing and debating sure. about stuff. But like they're having a conversation. You can kind of see why they could at least find common ground. Um, and so I think that was, that was a good part, uh, a good way to make it less creepy and icky, even though it's still creepy and icky. It's still um, creepy and icky, but it's... <laughs> For some reason, we're okay with that. <laughs> so moving on to LeFou, who um, I think Disney made a big mistake, or maybe not Disney, but um, the original interview that was given a couple weeks ago with Bill Condon, the director, and the way they hyped up the idea that there's an, a quote-unquote exclusively gay moment uh, involving LeFou, I think sort of oversold what we were getting or what we were going to get. Um, Never mind the countries like Malaysia and, you know, Russia that are either banning the movie or like giving it an extremely high rating or um, movie rating so that kids under a certain age can't see it. Like, forget that. But just the way in which they were like, oh, it's like we're we're gonna we're being super progressive now and we have an exclusively gay moment. And then you see the film and it's like, that was it. Yeah, um, <laughs> it it was very much ado about nothing, and you're right. The hype kind of killed it for me because one, every time I saw LeFou on screen, I was expecting like I don't know what I was expecting. I was like, is this going to be the moment where they do something gay, or is that going to be the moment where they do something gay, or is he going to try and sneak a kiss with Gaston? Exactly. And and yes, I applaud them for adding it in, but I, I think what ruins it is again what you mentioned is the hype because I think part of the whole step to progress is. Just making it normal. Like, you, you, it doesn't need to be talked about. It just kind of needs to be there and then let the chips lie where they, where they may. But it's, it's just normal. Let it be normal. Now, how do you feel? Like, to me, the, the, the gay moment, which I think we can at this point talk about, like, 
people spoiler million <laughs> millions of thousands of hundreds of thousands of people have seen it also i think uh entertainment weekly or vulture one of those two it's been the clip is out there <laughs> we know what the exclusively gay moment is which is at the very end a blink and you miss it um moment where they're all dancing and lefou is at first dancing with like a random female chorus girl or whatever uh and then all of a sudden he switches and is now dancing with uh a an, an, another man and actually i feel like the 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 gayer moments happened way before that <laughs> oh yeah um, all the jokes they made about it well too, for like yeah like mrs Potts specifically saying i think he's too good for you or something or you're too good for him right right and then there's a moment with that same man who we see with lefou where the wardrobe it's in the middle of the uh the ambush of by the the villagers of the the castle and there's a moment where the wardrobe like she basically makes up three of the the men who are fighting her into like dressed like like women like or, I, don't, I don't know if it's courtesans or you know dressed of the time like the French fluffy whatever and two of the men are like what is this this is crazy and then the middle guy is just like he gives that look like he gives the look and then he like t- spins and does away the... like he's never been more pleased <laughs> to be in a dress you know like the sachet it was like oh, okay <laughs> so like to me i thought we was that the exclusively gay moment uh because i was thinking that and then i was like but lufu's not involved so that can't be it no i i love that moment too i thought that was definitely funnier than the other exclusive gay moment i think if I had to be nitpicky, and this does not offend me, but I could see where it would offend others, is the fact that the joke is that it's men dressed as women, which kind of, you know, plays into that male male um, masculinity and kind of... Right. I, I, some people I've read had a problem with, you know, people laughing at... What, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, like, it's... the I guess, like, the, the feminization of being of men of men yeah i mean i can see that as well i mean the other thing to note is just that like you know the point has been made including on slate one of my colleagues marissa wrote about this when the exclusively gay comment came out but like disney has always had coded gay characters like this isn't new this is just the first time I, i think that they're like openly admitting it but like beauty and the beast itself has long been considered a allegory for um, LG, the LGBT community and specifically the AIDS crisis. Um, you know, Howard Ashman, who was the <clears throat> the lyricist, he actually, for Beating the Beast and also Little Mermaid and worked a little bit on Aladdin, he died right before Beating the Beast could be released theatrically um, of AIDS. And so the, that connection between him and the Beast character has been made since the movie came out. Um, you have other characters who are very clearly coded as gay. I mean, you could say Shere Khan is very effeminate. Um, really, like, a lot of the villains. Well, I mean, I've been... Yeah, absolutely, a lot of the villains. Ursula's is, you know, very drag. She's and, based um, off of Divine, the famous... Like, she her... Ursula was inspired by Divine, the, the drag In queen. a weird way. Um, I used to, like... This is just off-topic in a, in a way, but I used to really, like, not like Ariel from Little Mermaid so much because I think she really set, like, a bad example for girls and, like, if you don't like who you are, like, give up everything for the man. But now I kind of feel differently about her. I almost kind of relate her to, like, a, a transgender character. Like, she truly feels like she was born to be a human, and she feels like she was born in the wrong body. And so that's that's kind of the way I look at Ariel now, and it's weird. And so now she's kind of a hero in a way. I've me. never thought of that before. But are you sure that's the case, or does she just want to be a human because she sees Eric and is like, oh... Well, of course. Let me I mean, get some of that. There's, 
there's yes, there's there's the selfishness aspect of it, but that's the two aren't mutually exclusive. Like in in the way I just view her now, it's like yeah, she really does feel like she doesn't belong in the body that she was born into, and she just feels like she belongs to a different community, and she feels like she was I don't know. It's mm. it's just what I've been thinking of more and more. Obviously, I don't think it was intended that way when they made it, but that's the way I'm kind of seeing it now in the bigger scheme of the world today. That's so interesting. I need to go back and rewatch it and rewatch it from that lens. I've never thought of that before. All right. Well, let's move on to our plus or delta, John, um, for this week. Did you come prepared with a plus or delta? I forgot to mention that to you. Uh, I have a plus. I don't really have a delta per se. I don't really, I don't really either, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I do have a plus, but I don't have a delta. Um, we could just end this on a positive note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's end it on a positive note. Yeah, I don't think every week needs to be necessarily negative. Very I mean, tr- if, we, scratching if we spend like five minutes right now, I'm sure we could find a lot of deltas. Well, I, I, have a, I have a couple. I'm just concerned that they'll be like outdated by then. So I think we're gonna just going to do a plus for today from both of us. Um, John, why don't you go first? My plus is, okay, there's this show on CBS All Access. It's called The Good Fight. It's a spinoff of The Good Wife, which was on CBS. Um, The Good Fight is just, first of all, it has a very, very diverse cast, which is, of course, what the show is all about, being representative, and it's it's just good to see that. But also, they have, one of the main characters is a lesbian, and they just portray her character. It's just normal. It's, It's not a big deal. They never, you know, make a big deal about her being a lesbian or having a girlfriend. It just is what it is, and I think that is amazing to see it's just normal and that's that's all kind of we want is just to be normal good good choice i haven't caught up with that yet um although my friend has spent a good like 20 minutes trying to convince me why i should watch the show and i was like I have it so is many the shows. Best show. i know there's just so much to watch um but i will i will definitely check it out and i mean i can do a delta about the good fight too to flip it <laughs> Ooh, yeah why don't you while you're at it Well, my delta for The Good Fight is the fact that it's on CBS All Access, which, as you know, CBS is just like the white man's network. They have one, pretty much one show that's that's headed by a woman, and that's Madam Secretary. And then they have this they have The Good Fight, which is led by Christine Baranski, who is phenomenal in every single. I love her. She's so she's amazing. She never she's like the Meryl Streep of TV to me. And they put her on CBS All Access, which is streaming, and you have to pay seven bucks, and it's harder to find. And I just feel like she belongs on normal television. And it's good, good point. I didn't know you had to watch. That's the only way you can watch it. It's not like legally. <laughs> yeah, that's the only way you can watch it. <laughs> okay, legally, that is the only way you can watch it. That okay, that sucks. Um, all right. So my well, fine. I will come up with a delta since you did too. So both my plus and my delta are um, related to Beauty and the Beast. The delta is Josh Gad's sort of um, avoidance of talking about gay marriage recently, um, which I found sort of disappointing. He was in Australia, and uh, I think at one point he was asked, you, you know, like, what do you, what are your thoughts on gay marriage? Because apparently, gay marriage is like a just like it was here, it's a thing that is um, being debated there. And he just sort of like laughed and like declined to talk about it, which is like... Oh, yeah. I think he even said like, I'm not getting I'm not getting into this one. Right. And it's like, uh, I mean, you. why can't you just say, I think it's a good thing? Or like, you don't have to wade into the politics per se, but like, 
when you're you're promoting a movie that is clearly like hoping to capitalize in some part on the fact that your character is gay and has a quote unquote exclusively gay moment. And then you decline to like answer a really simple question related to the community you're trying to be an ally to. I don't know. I think that's kind of screwed up. So it it is kind of screwed up, but I wouldn't want to vilify him either because on the other hand, like he has done a lot for the gay community. Right. So I know he's an ally. It's just it, those little missteps kind of set us back a little bit and they do hurt. So yes. but I still love him. Right. No, I the, I don't I will not hold this against Josh Gad. I just think it's like a little, you know, a little nick in in the the overall uh, portrayal of this or the overall selling of this movie. And then my plus is, <laughs> and Verilyn actually sent this to me, although I'd already seen it. It is Nerdists. They did this amazing video parody of uh, Beauty and the Beast. It's Belle and Bougie as opposed to Bad and Bougie. Wait! Raindrop. Yeah. Drop top. Drop top. Chilling with a clock and a teapot. Pop. Ducking on Gaston because he not hot, hot. Switching with pops because he got, got, got. Now I'm the girl with the magic mirror. Wait. It's so, oh my goodness, it's so good. I like, uh, it, it's been a while since I've seen a really good parody that feels both like perfectly timed. Like it doesn't feel like it's old. Um, it doesn't feel out of touch. Like like we were talking about that six months ago. Um, and just the way it's like basically it's a it's this woman playing Belle, black woman playing Belle, and it's to the tune of Migos. The lyrics are replaced and she talks about like hanging out with a clock and a teapot pot. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's really great. So I encourage everyone to check it out just because you know, it's fun and it's Beauty and the Beast and it's Migos. (laughs) (laughs) So those are my plus and my delta. And John, real quick, uh, anything we should be looking out for? What are you up to? I'm working on a big trailer parody myself that hopefully we'll get to laugh at and talk about. Um, you can find all my info on Facebook on a Brittany Yank. It's now verified, which is a big deal for me. Yeah, <laughs> congratulations. Woot woot. Thanks. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, John, uh, for coming on the show to talk to me about Beauty and the Beast. And of Maybe <laughs> remember just really quick. Do you remember those uh, Disney mixes you made when we were in high school? How could I forget? We even tried to choreograph a dance to a twenty-five minute song. <laughs> for just for our listeners, our love for Disney goes way back. In high school, John would make these mixes of Disney songs, just like on his computer, and they'd be like twenty-five minutes of different Disney songs, just like blending into each other. He was such. There's a- just so many good ones you can't pick. <laughs> those are the days. <laughs> Thanks, John. It was great chatting with you. Bye. Bye. So almost two years ago, a video series calling out representation in Hollywood went viral. You may remember it. The very simple concept was, let's take a popular movie and create a supercut showcasing every line of dialogue spoken by a person of color in it. The films included 500 Days of Summer, Harry Potter, Gone with the Wind, and many others, And unsurprisingly, it showed both how underrepresented and misrepresented non-white characters have been throughout cinematic history. Dylan Marin was the creator behind that series, and as actor, writer, video producer, and activist, he's also accomplished many other great things, both on-screen and off. Back in January, he dropped by our studio to discuss his experiences being a queer Latino auditioning for roles, using art as activism, and much more. Check it out. 
Well, thank you so much for joining me in the studio today, Dylan. Thank you for having <laughs> me. This is an honor. Oh, it's an honor to have you on. It's I'm very excited for this. Uh, I've I've followed your work, and as you <laughs> noted, I was the first person to reach out to you about your your video that went viral. Every single word. Yeah. You were the very first person to cover that series. Awesome. And I remember that because I remember when I got so I was just making those videos every single word spoken by a person of color mm-hmm. um where I edited down mainstream movies to only the words spoken by people of color. I was making that and it was intended to be for, you know, the people who followed me on YouTube and stuff like that. Yeah. And so when I got the email from you and this is we're talking almost two years ago yeah like 2015 middle 2015 yeah exactly whoa look at your memory (laughs) i remember too but i didn't want to like you know be too thirsty about it oh well you know i i i just wanted to show that i was very well prepared for this interview you were (laughs) okay well great that was that's that was really special i felt i was like oh this this could be covered this could um Maybe people want to talk about representation in Hollywood, and it's not just like this small video series that I'm doing for the community I have. Yeah, yeah. I, we'll we'll get to that in a moment. Okay, but first, I want you to just tell the listeners a little bit about your background. Yeah, how did you get to where you are now, where you're creating all these videos, you're working with Seriously TV, yeah, and you're also an actor. Uh-huh. But like, where are you from? <laughs> what um, uh, it, 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 like? What made you want to become a performer? And, that yeah. is a great question. <laughs> um, born in Venezuela. Uh, lived there till I was five. Um, is that what you mean? Where did I come from? Like truly the roots? I, I mean, either or both. Okay. I mean, I feel like the, you've talked openly about being yeah. Venezuelan. So I've talked about, part... I'm, I'm coming out as Venezuelan today. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so I grew up in Venezuela or I was born in Venezuela, lived there till I was five, moved mm-hmm. here. Um, and in terms of performing and writing, I really was always drawn to performing arts. Um I, you know, my parents worked really hard to make sure that I could um, take an after-school class in in drama uh, because they learned early on that I wasn't going to be a sports kid. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> am not a sports kid. Yeah. Um, and so I think when they realized I, I was in a soccer class and I, like, refused to play and I just demand, like, sat on the side the whole time. And they were like, all right, what? do you want to do? And I was like, well, well that's I, nice they asked you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rather than like, you will do this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I got to play around with that stuff. And I think the funny thing is when you're drawn to performing arts, media in general, like arts and entertainment and media, the one in is doing middle school and high school plays. That was how I got in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did the same way. And, and I, and it's funny because it's such a narrow door for this very broad experience, mm-hmm. right? Or or this broad interest that has so many specific details to it. But I, so yeah, so I was like, well, I guess I love acting. I guess I'm an actor if this is the thing. Um, and then I went to college and I joined a sketch comedy group and I was like, oh my God. I love this. Mm-hmm. Like I was writing characters for myself. I wasn't just performing Shakespeare characters or if you're like incredibly contemporary, like a Tom Stoppard play. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so I, you know, 
to kind of put this in the macro perspective, too, in high school when I was acting in plays, sometimes casting directors would come to to see the shows. And, you know, they would um, they would get in touch with me later and they'd be like, you know, we, we really loved your work. We'd love to call you in for this role or that role. And so I was like, great, I'm going to do this for a living. Mm. Um, and uh, whether or not the auditions work out, worked out, they would set me up with meetings with agents and the agents would be excited to meet me and kind of just as excited to tell me that I wasn't going to get a lot of work. And I didn't understand that, right? How are, mm. like, in high school, you just understand, like, if I am talented and work hard, then I will work, <laughs> right? Right. Um, uh, but they were saying, you're really talented and you work really hard, but you're not going to get work. And I couldn't really wrap my head around that. Um, so the joy of being in college where I got to write for myself and write for my friends and my friends were writing for me and we were creating work directly to, for a community, also satirizing a community, making fun of ourselves, making fun of other people in good spirit mm -hmm. in the non-offensive, uh, you know, form yeah. of sketch. Um, felt amazing. And I felt like that, that was, I guess, my like into the comedy world. And I... You know, um, college went on. I was like, do I like this acting thing or is it this comedy thing? And and so I ended up writing more and kind of started seeing myself more as a writer. I left college having no clue what the fuck was going to happen. <laughs> and um, But I had written a play with a friend of mine. And it's a 17-character middle school talent show where we performed all the parts. And we started getting runs in different comedy theaters in New York City. So mm. I was like, okay, I'll stick around New York City for a while. And again, in that kind of evolution, like we're always kind of shedding our skin for what it is we exactly want to do. Um, I was like, I don't know that I totally see myself as a comedian. Like I'm something else. I can't really put my finger on it. And so, yeah, so I was like, oh, I guess am I a performance artist? <laughs> you know, mm. I don't know, exactly know what I am. Yeah. Um, made the Every Single Word series uh, because I was kind of getting a little fed up with the continued meetings with agents who were um, who were telling me again like we really love your body of work that you've been creating but again you're not going not going to get work and I didn't understand it so they when did you understand like when did they finally because that sounds very coded like coded it, oh it's fully coded um, <laughs> like so I he, he, the the big tipping point for me was so I also, um, was cast on a podcast called Welcome to Night Vale. Yes, yes. And yeah. <laughs> you play um, Carlos. I play Carlos. <laughs> um, here we are in the podcast world. <laughs> and that was and is an incredible experience. I met amazing people. Um, I'm so in awe of the writers and creators of that show. Um, so they hired me to do record a portion of the audiobook and a play I had written. A full-length play was just nominated for a Drama Desk Award. So this is like an industry-respected award. I was recording an audiobook for HarperCollins, an industry-respected brand. And I, once again, was called into meetings with agents. And I was hearing the same refrain of, well, it's cool that you've had this so far. But I don't, I don't know how much work you're going to get. You're very, quote-unquote, specific. 
And this is such... That's a new one I haven't, I oh, haven't heard. Specific is mm. such an unfortunate refrain in the industry, yeah. which is so fucked up if you think about it, because it's like, oh, you're too specific to be broad, right? You're like... You're this niche thing, you know? Yeah. I, I don't see a lot of people like you. And you're like, oh, I'm realizing you just can't have intersecting identities in this world. You can definitely be a Latino man, but there's like a type of Latino man. Yeah. And now you can be a gay man and there's a type of gay man. And if you complicate any of those, if you complicate any minority, you don't get to be nuanced. That's like part of the privilege of whiteness on screen, privilege of whiteness in media is um, is nuance. Mm -hmm. There get to be so many shades of you. But, um, you know, if I have to think of like who my type is, it's like oh, I, I don't. I don't know that I am a type. I hope my type is that I'm me, right? Yeah. <laughs> that I, there isn't a clone of me out there who has already succeeded. And these are you're you're mostly talking specifically specifically about agents who are like film like on screen agents, mm -hmm. right? Not yeah. theater that right. sort of thing. You know, I, I think kind of like every time I met with an agent, I was like, "This is it. I'm going to get signed, and this is how it all works." Mm -hmm. um, but one time in specific really sticks with me. Uh, this was the summer after the nomination or right between the nomination and the ceremony. So I was like still in that like hot spot of being a nominee. Mm -hmm. um, I was um, – so I went to this office of an agency that will remain nameless. That's fair. And <laughs> – um, and I was called into a meeting and it was an agency that represented um, – mostly kids. Mm. And um, the there was a kid who went in before me and I saw one of the main agents, his face just like lit up when he saw this kid. Like he was just like, oh my God, like really interacting with this kid. And was, was he like, like a white kid? Or? Yeah, he was, he was a, yeah. you know, a small, like... Cherubic. Cherubic, <laughs> like out of the 50s kid. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, this guy seems really nice, you know, because I had a meeting with him right after this kid. And I was like, oh, this guy seems really nice. Like, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the agency. And um, so the kid came out and I was like, great, I'm going to meet him. This is going to go great. And I went into the meeting and he would never look me in the eye. And he looked completely disinterested the entire time I was there. Mm. And... And it was just you two? It was just us. Okay. And I just, I, I don't know, I just felt like trash <laughs> that had been brought in off the street. Mm. Yeah, he just didn't look at me. And it's, what that means is like, oh, essentially I have no use for you. Mm -hmm. You know, you're like, I'm not that interested in you. You're telling me about the things you want to do, but I don't really want to hear them. Yeah. Um. And I, that was, that was really hard. That was like, oh, I keep hitting these walls. Like with, with every milestone that I reach in this industry, which are now industry standard milestones, it's not enough, right? Um, so from those series of meetings where um, no agent was really interested in, meeting me or looking me in the eye mm. um or signing me or looking me in the eye um i um 
was like, you know what, I I need to find a way to express why I'm not getting this work, why they're not seeing me as a potential client. And it's like, oh, of course. It's like this eureka moment happened for me where I realized that they're only seeing if they think I can get work in the industry. So these agents themselves are not bad people. It's just that they are beholden to this industry and this industry standard. And so if they see a quote-unquote specific person walk in their door who is a queer, soft-spoken Latino man, whoa, that's like three specific things. He wears pearl earrings. He has a mohawk. Fuck, I don't even, I, I, who are you, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, and because there wasn't a precedent for that, they're like, I, well, I don't think you're going to get work. And they're, they're not wrong, right? Because because if the industry is casting tropes, then then sure, they're right. I created the Every Single Word series as as a way to kind of very empirically show why these meetings were happening this way. Not this emotional plea of like, I think the Hollywood, the film industry is racist. Yeah. Um, but instead to say, well, let's not point fingers and call anyone racist. Let's just identify this very specific, um, unarguable, inarguable thing. This is how many words a person of color speaks in this movie. Of course, I'm not going to get signed because, you know, leave it to the Emma Stones and the Ryan Goslings to fall in love. Yeah. You know, the best I can hope for is five lines ask you know getting the dinner order of the white couple on a date well that was that was one of the things that struck me most about watching the series and like you go through a range of different movies from um from jaws where there's not not a single person right. of color and and yet the really interesting thing is many people of color on the beach right i th- that was the thing was that like i remember there being people of color on the beach and that's really telling that's right. saying oh there are people of color in this world. Yes. So we're not saying it's not realistic that they'd be there. It's saying, oh, you've chosen to not feature them. Right. But even even that is like, I mean, it's Spielberg, so he's he's a little bit more, I think, aware of these things. Whereas you can go through many movies, especially some, look at something like a Woody Allen movie where he's filming in the streets of New York and you like never see a black person of color anywhere like walking behind, no. even just walking behind. Oh, no. Um, but I mean, that's that's one of the things that struck me about the series was not just the complete absence of, of lines from some of the movies in which they like there are no people of color who speak a line. But then also when they did speak a line, what were they saying and what role were they playing? So <clears throat> you, did, you did one for... Well, Gone with the Wind, obviously. Uh, and that one was like 14 minutes long, which is pretty long because most of the, the series you had for like maybe anywhere from seven seconds to 30 seconds, usually. Um, but with Gone with the Wind, obviously, there's a lot of lines for slaves, but they're all it's it's almost all in relation to the white characters. It's like, Miss Scarlett, where are you going without your shawl and not have fix the set in? And how come you didn't ask them gentlemen to stay for supper? You ain't got no more matters in the but- field, even when you're looking at a movie like 500 Days of Summer, which a movie you say you love, and I also really like that movie, but the only lines were said by people of color who were in like either service positions, like a receptionist, or, you know, they're responding directly to one of the lead white characters. Tom, Mr. Vance would like to see you in his office. We've been stuck on this for an hour. 
Son, you're gonna have to exit the vehicle. I now pronounce you husband and wife. You may kiss the bride. It's like when they do when we do exist, it's always in relation to the white characters and it's usually in like a service position. Completely. Some, it, it's just uh, yeah, yeah, well it's 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 just you know, some uh, one screen test that I think is just so brilliant is the Bechdel test. Uh, when are two women in a scene together not speaking about a man? Similarly, when are people of color speaking to each other not about the plight of their racial identity? Right. When are two people of color falling in love? When are they dealing with the messiness of love? Not the messiness of their race, right? but the messiness of love. Um, another movie is Into the Woods. Nobody. Nobody. That is a movie set in an enchanted forest. Okay? <laughs> yes. There is a witch who puts a curse on a baker and his wife. And then all of the fairy tale characters come together and they're running through the woods. There's no reality that needs to be upheld here. Yeah. So... You know, when I made that, I, I got pushback. Even one BBC host, uh, when she interviewed me, she said, um, well, I just want to push back on that because that was medieval England. And I was like, no, no, that <laughs> never existed. <laughs> it never existed. Like, it never existed. So, so there's no historical accuracy that you actually need to uphold when you're making these movies. And there is so much that is bendable when we tell history on screen, right? Take Titanic. Um, Jack and Rose didn't exist, but that's a fictional story that was placed in a real setting. Um, Saving Private Ryan, the screenwriter had seen a monument from the Civil War and placed that, the story of the monument, onto the backdrop of World War II. Yeah. So... There's a there's a collage going on in history. Why are people of color not allowed into that collage? Why is that not bendable, right? Like, why is that this crucial, crucial part of history? But, oh, yeah, Jack and Rose weren't real people. Like, that's okay. That didn't happen. Whereas, what if we start, what would it look like? And this isn't an answer. I'm, this is not a proposal. It's just like, what would it look like? to have race-blind casting in historical fiction. Well, it would, it would look like Hamilton. Exactly. Right. And, and I, But I think that is <laughs> why people really lost it for Hamilton. Oh, yeah. Because Hamilton was like, oh, I am learning a ton of history and I am suspending my disbelief to know that this man and this woman created this son and it doesn't feel unrealistic. Yeah. You know, um, George Washington is played by Christopher Jackson. And you're not like, no, no, George Washington looked like this. You're like, yeah, okay, George Washington. And then you can focus on the dynamics between people. Yeah. Right? And then you're like, oh, that was their relationship. Um, and there's so much more of an in for people. The brilliant thing that Lin-Manuel Miranda did is that he is showing these people were immigrants. So is is their story relatable now that you see avatars of yourself on the stage? And the answer is yes. My goal in my career in this industry is to just create more avatars, uh, more reflections of people, more reflections of people who look like me, but also 
to use my platform that I now have to show reflections of people who don't look like me, who I also acknowledge are not being represented right now. Now, I got the job at Sir. I started working at Seriously TV. Yeah. And that's just been an incredible platform to make videos, to make videos that are responding to things, to make political satire, to also make sure that the political satire is pointed and and punching up, you know? You you have yeah, there are quite a few very I I think personally smart very smart uh, punching up examples that you have including men kissing men which in that video it's exactly what it says it mm-hmm. is but in the middle of it you you hold up these cards mm-hmm. and you say you know most people who are not okay with watching this would have turned off the clip by now right. and so they're now going to probably go and write some homophobic comments underneath yeah. the the video so for every homophobic comic we get we are going to donate money to, I think it was the Orlando Fund. Yeah, the one after, Orlando Fund, yeah. After the Pulse nightclub yeah. shooting at Orlando. And you, it's just, it, it is it is art and it is political art. And I'm wondering, like, at what point did you realize that this was sort of how you needed to make art and express yourself? And yeah. does that ever get tiresome? Um, that's a great question. Thank you for that. Um you know, it doesn't get tiresome because I constantly see a need for it, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I feel really lucky to do this work, um, and I feel really lucky to have a platform. One of the most crucial elements in art for me is accessibility. And I'm not just talking about financial accessibility. I mean, the videos we make are free mm-hmm. <laughs> online. Yeah. Um, but I I want to make sure that very big, complex concepts are accessible for people to understand. I really like when writing is like, oh, I can be complex and not um, guard myself or, or not make this inaccessible to people. So I ask all of my guests Great. this question. Which is, when is the last time you saw something on film or on TV where you saw yourself in a character, in a story being told, you felt represented? It's funny. Uh, it's like a patchwork of, of things. Oh, that's that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my two favorite movies of the year were Moonlight. And 20th Century Women. I loved both of those movies. They're incredible. Yeah. Um, Moonlight is a really stunning piece of film. Um, And 20th Century Women, like, rocked me. Now, let's also be aware that 20th Century Women has a real deficit of people of color. Oh, 20th Century Women is, like, such a is white person's 100. movie. <laughs> and But see, the thing is, it's not a white person's movie. I think it is a movie cast with white people. True. With such universal themes. We should probably just break down very briefly what the movie is about because I feel like it's sort of flown under the radar and for oh, whatever really reason... really flown. And for whatever reason, Annette Bening did not get an Oscar nomination. Which is 
mind mind blowing to me. Yeah. Anyway, the the movie Twenty Century Women. I actually don't know who directed it. I it's Mike uh, Mike Mills. Mike Mills. Yeah. So it takes place over. I want to say over the span of like a decade or mm-hmm. so, but it hops around a lot in time, mm-hmm. and it's about Annette Bening plays a single mother who mm-hmm. is trying to raise her son to be in a way to be a feminist essentially and so she enlists the um his friend from high school like his best friend from school and also the young woman played by Greta Gerwig who is boarding in her big house in there in San Francisco yeah. in the 70s yeah yeah or in uh California in I, California I think somewhere in LA and yeah San Francisco somewhere in sort of hippy dippy yeah hippy dippy land of, of California in the yeah. 70s and it's just a really stunning beautiful movie that touches on a lot of the issues that we are talking about now in terms of like what does it mean to be a male feminist and what Mm -hmm. does it mean to be raised by women and and what does it mean to be a woman who is trying to live her life like it's it's just really good i recommend people see it it's incredible and i really i really identified with the main character the the son of Annette Benning, who, and you know, what I loved about it so much was he had this sensitivity and empathy that is so rarely afforded to men on screen. Mm. Um, and it's also, if it is, it's kind of falsely ascribed to just gay men. Mm-hmm. Um and when the truth is there are many gay men who don't have that empathy as you learn yeah. in in you know dating <laughs> um but um so that blew me away and then the in moonlight there are three chirones yeah the middle chiron i was just like ooh like wow i to see a queer man of color, you know, I didn't have that exact high school experience at all, but it's close enough that you're like, I see you, Sharon, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, you know, there's this refrain in Moonlight of who is you, Sharon? And I think so many of us watch that movie and, was, and we're thinking, I know who Sharon is, like, it's me. Like, I was Chiron, or I am Chiron. And I definitely felt that in high school. So, yeah. So, I, w- I would say Moonlight and 20th Century Women, which were far and away my favorite movies of the year. Well, thank you so much, Dylan. Oh, my God. So thank you for having have me. You. It was truly such an honor. And that's a wrap. I had so much fun chatting with John and Dylan. And you all should feel free to share your thoughts on the new Beating the Beast, Every Single Word, or anything else we mentioned in this episode on our Facebook page, Slate Represent. And a friendly reminder that you can and definitely should subscribe to us on iTunes, Megaphone, Stitcher, or any other place you find your podcasts if you haven't already. And in case you don't know, there's a way to listen to this and other Slate podcasts without all of the ads. And that's by becoming a Slate Plus member. And now you can give it a try for 90 days with Slate's new iOS app. And Verlin and I are actually mulling over a new Slate Plus exclusive segment for members. So now is the time to sign up. Download today at slate.com slash app. 
Represent is produced by the lovely and amazing Verilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. Andrew Bowers is chief content officer of Panoply. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. And the music you're hearing right now is being performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time. Music